We are all driven by searching for something better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, but match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of Mindscape will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Just go to Indeed.com slash Mindscape right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Carroll. Quantum gravity is a topic that we return to again and again, uh, in part because I think it's really interesting. It's part of what I do and my research career, but also because it's a great example of science in action, or at least theoretical physics in action. Theoretical physics might not be representative as a science, but it's an example of a science. And we know that there's quantum mechanics. Those are the fundamental ways that the world works. We know there's gravity. It exists. So somehow they need to be reconciled, and we're not sure how. If you've read the big picture, you've heard me talk about the laws of physics underlying everyday life, you know that we have enough idea of how quantum gravity works to explain simple conditions like the solar system, why apples fall from trees. But when things get extreme in black holes or the Big Bang, we don't have the full theory, so we don't know exactly what to say. We do have a set of rules for taking a classical theory, like Einstein's general relativity, and quantizing it, but those rules don't work for gravity, or at least not in any ordinary, straightforward way. So by following progress in quantum gravity, you can kind of see how science works when we don't know the answer, and also for that matter, when there's not a lot of detailed experimental evidence. There is experimental evidence, namely, all of the experiments that say that gravity is real and all the experiments that say that quantum mechanics is how the world works. But that's not a lot of guidance when it comes to reconciling them. And of course, we know that there's different strategies for doing this. Loop quantum gravity is something that is still popular. Uh, the very second episode we ever did of Mindscape was Carlo Rovelli, who talked a little bit about that. But string theory is by far the most popular approach to quantum gravity 
for many decades now. And so today's guest, Andy Strominger, is one of the world's leading theoretical physicists of any sort, but string theorist uh, in particular. And I think it's a really great overview, a really great interview, because we both get into some details about specific questions in string theory and quantum gravity, but also you get to see a little bit of the development of the field. Andy was there at the beginning of string theory, not the very, very beginning. You know, the ideas behind string theory stretch back to the 60s and 70s, but what what is called the first superstring revolution was in 1984 when Andy Strominger was a young scientist and he helped develop the idea of compactifying 10-dimensional space-time down to our four-dimensional world in ways that make it look like the physics we observe, the standard model of particle physics. Look like vaguely, because we still don't know how to get exactly the correct complete theory of the standard model from string theory, but the first huge step was taken by Andy and his collaborators. And since then, he's still been at the forefront of many different ideas. We'll talk a lot in this podcast about the work that he did with Kormun Vafa, who's also at Harvard, on figuring out why black holes have the entropy they do in terms of the microscopic states that you combine to make a black hole in the context of string theory. That was extremely influential paper, thousands of citations. But also the theme that I want to tease out, which is maybe not obvious to someone who just reads Andy's CV and looks at his papers, where he has many, many very influential papers, is that he does keep his eyes on the prize. He wants to connect quantum gravity to the real world. So you might know that... um, well, let's let's just back up and put it in context a little bit. You know, in the 60s and 70s, when people were doing string theory, they were scattering strings, kind of like particle physics. In the 80s, this idea of compactifying and looking at different ways of getting string theory connected to four-dimensional physics became popular. In the 90s, there was the second superstring revolution, where you realized that there were higher-dimensional D-brains as well as strings, and of course, the famous ADS-CFT correspondence that we talked about several times here on the podcast, most recently recently with Rafael Busso. And in the ADS-CFT correspondence, you have a duality that relates quantum gravity, string theory in particular, in 10-dimensional space-time compactified in a certain way to quantum field theory in four-dimensional space-time. So the, the point of me running through this history is to point out that the boundaries between doing string theory and just doing quantum field theory or theoretical physics more generally have become increasingly blurry. That's why every time we have a string theorist on the podcast, they are slightly reluctant to call themselves a string theorist because sometimes they're just doing quantum field theory or just gravity theory or whatever. That's where we are now. But ADS-CFT is still uh, consuming a lot of oxygen in the quantum gravity world. And Andy has been one of the best people in pushing beyond ADS-CFT to think about de-sitter space, not just anti-de-sitter space, a universe with a positive vacuum energy like our real world has, and also to think about the duality or the holographic description of black holes in our universe. And Andy is part of the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard, where they combine people who do theoretical physics, like Andy does, with philosophers and also experimentalists and observers who are actually looking at black holes with the Event Horizon Telescope and elsewhere. They're trying to figure out how we can get data 
from black holes that either just help us understand classical gravity and black holes or maybe string theory and quantum gravity. So that's why it's, a, it's an exciting time. It's gonna, it takes a long time to make progress in these areas when you don't have guidance from data. But uh, we're going to get a masterclass here from one of the people who are real, is really on the inside moving this field forward about how to make progress in quantum gravity and connect it to the real world. So let's go. Andy Strominger, welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. Glad to be here. You know, it's great to have you on because I was thinking about it. We we have done quantum gravity string theory and things like that before, but we've had, you know, Lenny Susskind who was there at the very prehistory of it all. Uh, yes. And we've had the younger generation, you know, Raphael Busso, Netta Engelhart, uh, Clifford Johnson, but you were sort of perfectly timed, right? I mean, your physics career was just starting when superstrings hit the scene. Uh, so, I mean, maybe tell us That's a bit. That's right. I hit, I hit the Beatles when I was an adolescent, <laughs> and then I hit superstrings when I was... Bored at the right time. Very, very anthropic. Bored chosen. at the right time, yes. <laughs> I mean, maybe we could just start by giving your view, uh, be as personal as you want, about how quantum gravity research has evolved over your own research career. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really interesting question. So um, I started graduate school at uh, near the end of uh, a really strong... Uh, you know, heyday of of particle physics when, you know, re new results were coming out of accelerators practically, you know, every week. And there was all kinds of excitement, um, the strong interactions mm. as, you know, the QCD is the theory of strong interactions was not even fully accepted uh, when I was a graduate student. I had to <laughs> defended in my thesis against wow. uh, an experimentalist. Yeah, it's kind of surprising to think about now. Um, and there were, you know, two of the really big problems uh, that a really, uh, you know, ambitious graduate student was expected to try to tackle were, you know, solving the strong interactions in some way, finding mm -hmm. an analytic method to compute the mass of the proton, um, a problem which still uh, remains unsolved, though basically <laughs> progress uh, continues with uh, very recently. And the other one was finding the grand unified theory. That was before mm. people had become discouraged by uh, the absence of of proton decay and other things too, but those were were two of the two of the big ones. But just to just to help and, the audience, in, in your in the as a term of art, grand unified theory does not include gravity. It's not a theory of everything. Gravity was so off of people's <laughs> radar screen right. that the term grand unified uh, was unification of the elect uh, the, the weak. Uh, the electroweak uh, and the strong forces in one uh, in one hole, and 
people didn't, you know, oh, gravity, who cares about that? You know, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's very strange, very strange. But, um, you know, there was a small group of people, and by small in the world, uh, I mean dozens, mm. and um, who were interested in not so much unifying gravity with the other forces, but just having a theory of it. Right. There were, was a theory of the strong and the electroweak interactions that uh, Nobel Prizes were about to appear for, but there was no theory of uh, gravity that was consistent with quantum mechanics. And the fact that there was a problem, you know, these are arguably, you know, two of the greatest achievements in the 20th century physics, the discovery of quantum mechanics and the uncertainty pre principle, and Einstein's theory of general relativity. And these two pillars of, of, of physics uh, were, uh, at that time, uh, completely incompatible. No yeah. way of writing them, having them both on the same piece of paper. No self-consistent way of having them both on the same piece of paper existed. And the number of people interested in that problem was in, in the dozens. And uh, in Cambridge at that time, I was a grad student at Berkeley, and then I moved to MIT. In Cambridge in that time, there were two or three people discussing it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, uh, it's fair to say that it was heavily discouraged <laughs> and looked down on. Yeah. Uh, my thesis advisor, who I could quote because he quoted myself, told me not to work on it. Mm -hmm. I would never get a job. And then several decades later, when I was giving a colloquium at MIT, he said, he said he told me that, <laughs> and, he said, and then he added, "Good thing he didn't listen to me." <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't the only one. Many, many people. Um, basically, all the all the influential uh, leading figures in the in the field were in the field of theoretical physics felt it was a problem that, um, first of all, not very interesting, and secondly, uh, premature, that we yeah. didn't have any ways to address it, and, and also that it was very far from having any possible uh, contact with experiment. I don't know if you know the story, but Hugh Everett, when he invented the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, he was a grad student at Princeton and John Wheeler was his advisor. And the thesis project he was given was quantized gravity, but he couldn't figure out how to do that. But he realized that if you had the whole universe as your quantum system, there were no outside observers and that led him to invent many worlds. So there was a, a good thing that yeah. came out of it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, John Wheeler was certainly one of the early champions of, of, the importance of quantum gravity, though, um, you know, he has many, you know, a mythic figure in twentieth right. century physics with many great achievements. Uh, not least of my, which is uh, coining the word black hole, <laughs> and um, 
he worked on quantum gravity, but like many people who had worked on it in the preceding you know, 20, 30 years, didn't have too much to show for it. Right. What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what's happening. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel is the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I like about Babbel is its practicality. It's about talking to real people, ordering food, asking directions. You will put it to use. And here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Mindscape. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash Mindscape. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Mindscape. Rules and restrictions may apply. So I actually, uh, I'll confess, I did research for this podcast. I went on to Inspire and went through your publication list because I was going to guess that you would have been like many people in that era where you were working on quantum field theory or QCD or unification, and then string theory came along and you jumped on it. But you were already doing quantum gravity, so you were coming at it from a different direction a little bit. I was, I was doing quantum gravity. And um, it, I, I wanted to. That was my main interest um, throughout my thesis. I, you know, I had my day job, which was QCD and, and so on. I, and it, it was interesting, you know, the, the interesting <laughs> problems, but it wasn't where my right. my real passion lied. Um, and um, I guess somewhere, sometime around nineteen. 83, yeah, 1983 it would have been. I realized that um, that string theory was that string theorists, of which there were really in practice only two at that time who were really, <laughs> you know, yeah. Green and Schwartz that were running around talking about it. Uh, I mean, other people had worked on it, but they were the... Uh, um, that they were claiming to have a mathematical resolution of the problem of quantum mechanics and general relativity. In other words, they were claiming, well, uh, let me back up. They were claiming to have solved the infinity problem, right? which is the one that um, Wolfgang Pauli first noticed in the 1950s that you can't just you know take out your cookbook and dress up gravity with quantum mechanics in the way that we did so incredibly successfully for the electroweak and the strong interactions that somehow gravity wasn't going to play by those rules mm -hmm. that was what what Pauli noticed and then there's also of course Hawking's problem of black hole entropy and uh, information loss and, and so on, which I imagine we'll come to later. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, conversation could go anywhere. Who knows? But um, so Green and Schwartz were claiming to have solved the first problem 
and just an existence proof of uh, a theory which could reduce to Einstein's theory of general relativity in one limit and Heisenberg, Schrodinger, quantum mechanics in another. And that was no mean feat. Yeah. We were very clear, however, about the fact that their theory could not be the real world because it didn't have quarks and leptons and parity violation and all those good things that we 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 uh, have observed in love. And um, so, but they came from, both of them, a particle physics background. And the theory was presented in a very particle physics-like <laughs> language. And um, I remember saying, just at the time I was trying to learn strict, so I felt I had to learn it because somebody claimed to have solved the problem that I was <laughs> working on. And um, so I should understand what they were saying. Fair enough. Uh, even if I was predisposed, I was predisposed not to like it. Because, <laughs> you see, my thought was that it was a very deep and, uh, which it, I still believe correct, but it's a very deep problem. And it had resisted solution for decades. And we really needed some new conceptual input, like the equivalence principle or the uncertainty yeah. principle or some really fundamentally way, different way of, and there, the the main hypothesis of string theory, that uh, particles were are in fact little strings, in my then eyes, <laughs> fell short of the deep. You know, it seemed a little uh, just kind of trivial and uh, mathematical, and and uh, and. Uh, it fell short of what I was looking for, so I didn't really like it, but I felt obligated to to learn it. And I remember just coincidentally around that time, I, I was at the Institute for Advanced Study then, and Mike Green visited for a week, mm -hmm. and they put him in my office. And I, I had some conversations with him, uh, and I said to him, I remember saying to him, you know, so I begin to accept that it, it technically solved the problem, but I still <laughs> didn't like it, and I was trying to find something wrong with it. And I remember saying to him, uh, Mike, but isn't it just really ugly? <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, Mike got these kind of stars in his eyes and went on something which I saw a lot about later, you know, about how beautiful it was. Mm. And it's one of those things that you really, um, now, of course, we have far more elegant. They had the most clumsy possible way of describing it and presenting it. Brute force kind of but approach. It just, yeah. it brute force. It just looked like a pages of technical, complicated formulas, and you get to the end, and you find that the affinities go away, and you you feel kind of swindled, like, like if something <laughs> something so simple is happening, yeah. why can't we, you know, understand it? Something so profound is happening. Why do we need all these pages and pages of equations? I, you know, I had s 
slaved through their monographs of light code formulation oh, of string yeah. theory, and, <laughs> and I, I didn't like it. Of course, you know, um, obviously, I turned around on it, and in due course, <laughs> I began to see, it often happens in physics that people who get really totally a thousand percent immersed in a subject begin to see a kind of beauty and inner mm. harmony in a set of equations that other people from the outside can't see. And it's easy to be critical of those people thinking they're just lost in their equations. <laughs> but I I think it's, I have great respect for these people who just calculated. It takes all kinds to do physics. It takes all kinds, absolutely. But we, yeah. need, those, we need those people yeah. that dive in, calculate, and just to sort of feel, really get to the bones of something. And, you know, Mike and John had been doing that for 10 years and they saw something that really nobody else, nobody else did. And, and, uh, yeah. Well, there's some other people too. There's other people we know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but when you did dive in, one of the first things you did was to help explain how it might be related to the real world. We don't want to leave that thing you said hanging, that it's, it can't be the real world. We know better now. That's right. And so um, I, I had been, right, I had been trying to understand how, um, you know, Kluze-Klein theory, of course, which Einstein was his, spent the last half of his life on trying to unify the forces using extra dimensions. That was very beautiful and compelling. And um, and so, and Green and Schwartz, it didn't, didn't put geometry in. Um, it was all scattering of gravitons yeah. with other particles. So we, we put the geometry back in and um, we, we found, as you just alluded to, we found that if you look very carefully at the equations of string theory in 10 dimensions and consistent ways to get rid of the 10 dimensions and get down to four, that um, just the simplest thing, which involved actually, it was the simplest thing, but it did involve a lot of very deep mathematics, <laughs> the Calabi conjecture. Yeah, it was proof of the Calabi conjecture. Some ideas in algebraic geometry, but nevertheless, it was this. It sort of popped out of a hat that when you look through this carefully and you look at exactly how string theory allows the extra dimensions to curl up so that we can't see them, it very naturally results not only in a Paraday violating structure like the one in our world with plenty of room for, you know, all the leptons and quarks and, and, and all of that, but the natural unified gauge groups were sort of the only thing that you could get. <laughs> so when we did that, I, I, it was a feeling like, um, you know, sort of, throwing a basketball from the far end of the court <laughs> and having it big into the hoop. Yeah. And, and, and the world, you know, the world resonated with that. I mean, within a few months after our paper, the number of people working on string theory went from 
from dozens to you know a thousand or something like that i I haven't seen anything uh else like that in my my career and it was sure fun to be um to be to be um right right at the right at the center of that yeah and i get the impression as someone who is string theory positive but not involved with it myself that these days most of the people in the field are more on the geometry side than the particle physics side. Like the questions that are involving our minds, or maybe they're just the questions I'm paying attention to, do have a lot to do with gravity as gravity, less so with particle physics as particle physics. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the but but that took the thousand people who oddly, the thousand people who started working on it after we showed this were the people were mostly the particle physics people mm-hmm. who had been trying to understand unification and um you know they were um you know string theory was in my view and uh wrongly viewed as kind of the the final capstone in the reductionist program <laughs> of of physics yeah and um that was what got them excited there was a less of a reaction from the general relativity community where most of the people who had been working on the problem of quantum gravity circulated right so the people who had been working on that problem oddly didn't embrace uh, string theory uh, as a as a solution though at that time though everything you know everything shakes itself out in sure. the fullness of time but yeah and and at this point just to you know jump right up to the present day um, while we're still thinking very very broadly here give me your impression of how you think about string theory like you've already hinted by tone of voice that maybe it is not the completion of the reductionist program of everything is it is it something that teaches us things and a useful thing to think about for the moment or are you really conceptualizing it as an 80 percent chance of being just the final answer to physics okay so um yeah. So after having thrown the ball across the the <laughs> the court uh, and got into the got into the hoop, you know, if we did that once more, uh, we'd have that would be it. Yeah. You know, but we didn't do it once more. Right. And nothing that exciting in the um, in the goal to make direct kind of experimental contact with reality, I don't think happened again. And um, and I rather quickly, I mean, the, the problem was that there were many ways to curl up the extra dimensions, and that led to a sort of proliferation of, it's sort of, it, there's a, a sense in which string theory uh, is unique, but I, as I would put it, there's so many phases of it that there's no real predictive power there. And I and many other people who the press was 
less interested in quoting. <laughs> I uh, took the point of view that string theory was not going to make an experimental prediction. I wrote that already in 1986, a year after my 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 paper on the and was not this kind of the next step in the reductionist program. And so, you know, it's disappointing, of course, that we haven't been able to make contact with experiment. Um, there's a basic problem that the basic scale and size of the phenomena that we're looking at, where quantum mechanics and gravity are both important, is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, which is unimaginably small. And we're really, you know, it could happen that some mm -hmm. these experimentalists are blowing our minds and our socks off every week. It could happen that they come up with something amazing, but this would be even more amazing, you know? <laughs> so I'm not expecting that. And that's disappointing. But I think what has happened is more wonderful and more exciting than anything we imagined in 1984, 1985, in the sense that we've gotten, um, you know, ideas about, you know, how space and time might emerge from, uh, you know, the holographic cube principle and so on. Maybe we'll get into that yeah. later. Maybe we won't. But what has happened is, you know, you know, teasers and inklings of how different the universe might be than than what we um, than what we imagine and what our senses, you know, tell us. It 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 it's like the analogy I like to use. So if you ask me about percentages. I would say the chance, people often ask the question, is string theory right or is it wrong in the sense of describing the real world? It's it's not a yes or no question. Hmm. And um, I think the chances of it being 100% right, in other words, that we, we find the right Calabiao space and that we nothing needs to be added to what we said in 1985 except finding the right Columbia space and, you know, finding how the condensates work or whatever, you know. Um, I think the chances of that, of it really in the end being the solution of the reductionist paradigm as was momentarily hoped in the 80s, you know, are, I don't know, what in a billion, what in a billion, <laughs> zero essentially. Right. Yeah, okay. okay. But I think that the chances of it being completely wrong mm. and irrelevant, that a hundred years from now, historians of science will look at this as an amazing prolonged detour on our path to the truth of about about nature, are even smaller. Mm. An analogy I would like to use is Yang Mills theory. Okay. So Yang Mills theory is a very famous theory discovered by Yang and Mills in the 50s. Everybody, every physicist knows about it. They invented it to describe the relationship between the proton and the neutron. <laughs> the, 
that turned out to be completely wrong. But it had a kind of inner consistency and a structure, and it kept bouncing back and appearing everywhere. And now we realize, well, it doesn't describe the proton and the neutron. It describes everything else <laughs> at a more fundamental level except gravity. Yeah. Um, so I think that string theory, you know, we're, we tend to be too arrogant about how complete our current knowledge is. I think there are going to be fundamental new ideas and ways of looking at things, and we've already seen that within happen within string theory many times, and I think it will continue to happen, and that somehow string theory will find its place, but not in the simple way that we imagined. And it may, how much it will look, you know, string theory today is such a different theory than the one Green and you know Green and Schwartz uh, presented to us in you know in the eighties, um, uh, and it will grow and accrete other things and be connected to other things in in many ways before it it finds its home in some kind of home in physical reality. That's that's my guess. This episode of Mindscape is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing that we had more time to do things. But the question is, time for exactly what? Even if your time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. And therapy can help you find out what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you've given any thought to starting therapy, think about giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Mindscape today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Mindscape. I think that makes perfect sense. And, and, and one of the things that we have learned by doing string theory is, of course, holography that you already mentioned, the ADS-CFT correspondence. We've talked about ADS-CFT a couple times on the podcast with Raphael, with Netta Engelhart. Um, but I wanted to see, ask if you know you could explain it in your words and then move on to, you've been one of the leaders trying to bring it closer to the real world because we do not have an anti dissider background in which we live. We don't have a negative cosmological constant. Maybe we could connect it to something with a more realistic, positive cosmological constant. Yeah, I would frame it this way. I would go back to Bekenstein and Hawking uh, and the whole graphic principle. So Bekenstein and Hawking showed using a stunningly simple and elegant argument um, that the number of gigabytes in a black hole number of gigabytes of information that a black hole can store is proportional to its area. And that is very, very strange because the number of gigabytes you could put in your phone and on your hard drive is proportional to the volume in your phone. You know, you stack the chips up in there and there's mm -hmm. a fixed amount of volume for each one. So it's very, very strange that 
the number of gigabytes should go like the area. Um, so now we have these giant black holes that we see in the sky, mm. and it suggests that there's you can only store the information, or it's sufficient to store the information by putting the chips just on the surface, the horizon of the black hole. Now, you can't really do that because they would just fall in. <laughs> Nothing would keep them there. Right. And there's no, it's very hard to see exactly how that'll happen. But that is what happens in a hologram. In a holographic plate, you can store all the information on the surface of the region you're trying to describe. So I would call this the first, um, the word did holographic principle didn't uh, exist then, but this was the first uh, version of it. Mm -hmm. And then at Tuft and Susskind uh, recognized how, what an important idea this was. Uh, they, they talked about it. They had some uh, important discussions of it, but nothing really took hold or became precise. And then what happened in string theory, again, in string theory, we've, we've found, um, and this is what Vafa and I did, we literally, using a crazy, complicated, so often happens in <laughs> physics that you, you have uh, some really complicated argument to derive something, and then over time it gets simpler and simpler and simpler, and you realize you didn't need all that complicated stuff. But we found a very complicated uh, construction within string theory of special kinds of stringy black holes mm -hmm. that do have event horizons, and they do they are subject to the Bekenstein-Hawking analysis, which says that their um, gigabyte capacity should be proportional to their area. area. And Vafa and I actually constructed the hologram in complete um, complete detail. And it involved the kitchen sink, you know, uh, we we had all kinds <laughs> of mathematics. It was it was completely correct and we hit the answer on the nose. Um, but uh, it was very complicated. And uh, but it was an existence proof that you of the holographic principle. We realized how a region of space-time, a black hole, black hole being the hologram, could be realized by a holographic plate. This was then um, generalized to a whole universes, which were really near-horizon regions of of the of the black hole, um, negatively curved uh, negatively curved universes, and um, and Moldesina um, formulated a very precise conjecture, which applied to these negatively curved universes in specific examples that occur within. Uh, string theory. Um, 
and up to, I guess, seven dimensions, and um, showed, again, concrete realizations within the framework of string theory of, uh, of the holographic principle. And again, these, um, these constructions have a lot of precise mathematics in them. And as you know, there have been thousands or maybe tens of thousands <laughs> of papers working out details of this, generalizations of this. Enormous amounts have been learned about mathematics, uh, pure mathematics, also properties of physical um, systems. It's been a great source of kind of inspiration of how uh, quantum systems um, might be related to one another, um, but it's not the real world. And the real world, uh, in one approximation, in a very good approximation, is flat. It's not negatively curved like these spacetimes. And if you're a little more careful, it, it, at least in the far future, it's expected that it's positively curved, just the opposite, the sitter space rather than anti-de-sitter space. So of the three possibilities, negative curvature, zero curvature, and positive curvature, the one that we've understood is the least, is the furthest from physical, observable physical reality. Right. So it's been um, surprisingly uh, difficult to, to generalize this. Um, to to those to those contexts, and is there a way you know, at this level of discussion, or maybe we need to fill in some more details? But is there a way to explain why it's so difficult? I mean, shouldn't the real world be the easier one to explain, given our great experience with it, than the fake negatively curved world? Um. Yeah, that's a real, really <laughs> deep question. Uh, Sean, um, well, you know, I kind of suspect that when we, sometimes you don't always understand the simplest things first. There's still hope. It could well be, and, you know, it could well be that when we do understand the right way to think about the kind of geometries, the holographic principle in, in the real world um, that will kick ourselves <laughs> and, and it will seem much simpler right. than whatever we were doing in, in anti-decitter space. That could easily happen. Um, but also, you know, the real world is a very, very complicated place. A lot of stuff happens. And now complexity, of course, can arise out of simplicity. It often does. But to see through, we're looking at the end product, to see through this very, very complicated end product to some simple structure is, is uh, you know, well, it's super fun. <laughs> but uh, you know it's not easy right. and we haven't we haven't succeeded yet 
And so we often, um, whenever we find some kind of every, you know, single uh, physicist where they can make some kind of simplifying assumptions, you know, Newton just talked about, you know, planets moving in empty space and sure. treated the sun like a point-like mass. And, you know, he didn't take into account all the magnetic fields. Of course, he didn't know about them, but, you know, um, so we always make simplifying assumptions. And sometimes we study theories with um, simpler systems, like an age-old trick Already, I was using it in my PhD thesis to study quantum chromodynamics. You, if you can't do it in four dimensions, mm. four space-time dimensions, go down to two. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a, a way to simplify things. There's another way to simplify things, which is to have more symmetries. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's a very powerful symmetry known as supersymmetry. Mm -hmm. uh, that people use to simplify things and gives you ways of calculating things that that you you couldn't otherwise. Let me let me let me run something by you. I'm going to invoke my privilege yeah. as the podcast host to be a little bit technical, hoping that the audience will stay with us and then awesome. we can awesome. then we can back awesome. up a little bit. Um, Let's hope I can stay with you. Yeah. <laughs> ADSCFT. Anti-de-sitter space, conformal field theory, theory with gravity, theory without gravity in one lower dimension. Uh, one of the reasons why it works so well is because the non-gravitational side is a field theory, a quantum field theory. It lives in a space-time and has an infinite number of degrees of freedom, Hilbert space, etc. One of the ways in which de-sitter space, which you mentioned, the more realistic uh, cosmology, is different is that its sort of boundary is not to the left or right, but in the future or in the past, and that's a little weird. But the other way is that within a de Sitter horizon, there's a finite number of degrees of freedom. There's a finite dimensional Hilbert space that characterizes it. So is is maybe one of the things that is well, making maybe, like, maybe, maybe. I, I think so. This is why I said I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know. I agree with you. Conjecture. Most people would agree with you, but. Good. We don't have. We don't a, know for sure. We don't Absolutely. have a solid calculation to back that. But up. is there yeah. a, a potential idea that just we're better at quantum field theory than we are at finite dimensional models, and and therefore the thing that might be the dual description of de Sitter space is not in our toolkit already, and that's slowing us down. Um, I mean, it could be. Uh, you don't. <laughs> you, you don't solve it. Until you, you know, it's it's not over till the fat lady sings. I mean, sure. we don't know what we don't know how what what the final thing is is going to look like. But I I think the basic problem that people have wrestled with what the problem you say is a that is a very vexing one, but it's it's not the only vexing one. Fair enough. Yes. And, there's another vexing one, which is that the whole basic idea of a hologram is something which sits at a boundary. You know, it's a mm -hmm. boundary of the black hole. And anti-de-sitter space, uh, very conveniently, if you go out to large radius, has a boundary. So it's, you know, I, 
often describe it as, you know, like a like a can of soup. You know, yeah. you got the soup in the inside, and then you got the can, and the the can is the holographic plate, tells you what the ingredients are, and the soup is the is the space time that 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 we live in. Now, the sitter space, if you fix a moment of time and move, start moving off in space, eventually you'll come back right to where you are. It doesn't have a boundary in space. It has a boundary in time at the infinite future. So if you try to uh, invoke the holographic principle that the holographic plate lives at the boundary, the boundary has no time. The boundary is at the infinite future of time. And so this is like, so, so, um, you know, so this is like the ultimate sort of brain teaser. You know, <laughs> how do you, <laughs> how do we, we don't have a boundary in space. We want to have a holographic plate. It's supposed to, the holographic plate is supposed to keep, keep have all the same information as the hologram, the image, but the image has time in it, the boundary doesn't. How do we put all these things? It's, you know, it's just, we haven't solved it, but it is such, just such a beautiful uh, <laughs> conceptual problem. And, and, you know, it's really, it's really wonderful in this subject to, to be able to go back and forth between things like the anti-desitter, the ADS-CFT correspondence, where you can write out all the equations till you're blue in the face and then try to mesh that with these deep conceptual, you know, reframings that we're clearly right. going to need if we're going to take the lessons that we've learned from anti-desitter space separate the general features of the ADS-CFT correspondence from the specific ones that are associated with string theory. It's kind of, right, you know, exactly, sort of yeah. take the meat off the bones and, and import it and use those insights to say things about the real world that we can, you know, say without in, ever invoking string theory. Even if we got trained by string theory on how to understand these systems in the end we don't we don't want to we don't want to invoke it and that's true for desitter space it's also true for flat space mm. that it it is not it doesn't have its boundary also doesn't have a simple time that you can identify with uh, Flat space actually of all of them has the funniest boundaries. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You can buy my book. You can buy Space Time and Geometry if you want we to read can, more. We can about buy that. your book. It's a great book. <laughs> I use it when I teach the course on general relativity. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. 
so okay I, I just want to you know get the footnote on the record that i my guess is that the finite dimensionality of hilbert space is going to play a bigger role once we do understand this than a lot of people uh, absolutely suspect. yeah so, yeah um but you but all these things that you mentioned do lead very naturally to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, is which is the Kerr CFT correspondence. Uh, the idea that rather than looking at a whole uh, cosmology, we can think about individual black holes um, and relate them to a dual quantum field theory. And I think I've just reached the limits of my knowledge there, but maybe you can fill in what the story is. Well, okay. So, um, one of, oh, so that was sort of an early, uh, an early attempt, which is still, you know, looking very promising of, uh, trying to take lessons from string theory and apply it to the real world. So in this work with, um, Vafo, where I says we use the kitchen sink and uh, algebraic geometry textbook and everything to construct this um, holographic, to construct the holographic plate for these black holes in string theory. As time went by, we found simpler and simpler ways of doing the calculation until finally we realized that there was only one thing that mattered. And the thing that mattered was what we call uh, an emergent symmetry. And that is, sometimes there can be regions of, of uh, space-time uh, in which, or even emergent symmetries occur all over the place. Um, like, for example, if you take, uh, I guess the first example of it was measured, or one of the first measured examples was sort of at the end of the 19th century, the, the, the so-called critical opalescence in the liquid to gas phase transition in carbon. In other words, if you take carbon at just the right uh, pressure and temperature, it goes from being a liquid to being a gas, all of a sudden it becomes opaque right at that moment. Very noticeable uh, thing. And that's because at that point, it suddenly gets extra symmetries, mm. so-called conformal symmetries. And that enables, produces excitations which can absorb the light and you can't, can't see through it anymore. So there are many examples of this. It's this kind of critical phenomena and emergent symmetries is really the organizing principle of much of modern physics from condensed matter to particle physics to everything. And there are also examples of it in astronomy. They're, they're fewer and further in between, but I think as time goes on, we'll be seeing more of them. And But of course, a well-known one is um, the theory of in inflation, mm -hmm. where the spectrum of the CMB fluctuations suggests, and various other evidence suggests, that the very early universe, there were emergent uh, the, the sitter symmetries, and there's even experimental evidence for that. Now, um, so what part of what Vafa and I did was to show that very near the horizon of a black hole, 
you got an emergent symmetry and not just a few of them, but an infinite number of them. <laughs> emergent conformal symmetries. And when you have, an, and there are other examples in physics where this has been experimented, like in the quantum hall effect, you, okay. get, you have emergent, many examples yeah. actually of infinitely many emergent conformal symmetries. And when you have these infinitely many, um, you have a lot of control over the dynamics of the system. And in fact, there are universal formulas that you can derive for systems with these infinite uh, numbers of symmetries that tell you uh, how many gigabytes of information they can store at some excitation level. So weirdly, this infinite conformal symmetry was exactly what the doctor ordered for, um, for answering this question posed by, implicitly posed by Beckenstein and Hawking back in the 70s. How do we explain this, um, you know, this, the, the, the gigabytes in a black, the area law for the gigabytes in, in a black hole. Now, wonderfully, there aren't, you know, when we look up at the sky at, you know, GRS 1915 or M87 or Sag A star, these are not very like the black holes that, um, that Vafa and I <laughs> considered. However, GRS, however, it turns out that uh, black holes, in some cases, the ones we see in the black hole up in the sky, particularly the very rapidly rotating ones, black holes can spin around. They're called Kerr black hole. And every black hole we see is spinning to a greater or lesser degree. They don't stay still. Yeah. And a surprising number of them are spinning very rapidly. They like to spin rapidly. If you throw something at them, if they interact with stuff, it's, they tend to spin up, okay? However, there's a speed limit on black holes. And the speed limit is that the surface of the black hole, the so-called event horizon, is not allowed to spin around faster than the speed of light. That's basically Einstein's speed limit. And uh, when they get very near the speed limit, um, as they like to do, they get exactly the same uh, conformal symmetry that Vafa and I used to construct the hologram for the stringy black holes. And indeed, you know, Cygnus X1, I think, is 98, 99%, you know, within 1% of the speed limit. JRS 1915, maybe 2%. There's a lot of them that are really, really whizzing around up there. So these are black holes that you could apply some, you could take some of the extracted wisdom, wisdom from our, our stringy adventures and use the same kind of reasoning to understand and explain their their um, their their structure, and um, so 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 that's a 
that's an example mm. of that's what you co we're calling the Kerr CFT uh, correspondence, and the C there is conformal field right. theory. So the conformal is the conformal symmetry, and the Kerr is the Kerr black hole. Kerr is the person who found uh, the spinning uh, black black hole solution, and um, yeah, the symmetry also like the fluctuations in the CMB and so on, uh, the scale the scale dependence of the CMB fluctuations, the symmetry also has uh, predictions uh, which which we've which we've uh, made for the structure of emissions from and signals from you know astrophysical uh, black holes. I think it'll be some time before we get to the level of precision that that any of these predictions could be could be verified, but uh, it, we're 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 we're, cl we're getting closer than Vafa and I were. <laughs> I mean that that was extremely excellent uh, explanation. There's just two little things I want to fill in. Uh, yeah. The word conformal we've been throwing around a lot. Is it is it good enough to think about that as a scaling symmetry? Like you zoom in twice as much and the system looks the same as it did at your original zoom. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Good. So that's that's all conformal means. Things, it's not as scary as it sounds. Things look the same on on all different length scales. Uh, you know, uh, the, maybe the example people would be most familiar with would be like a fractal pattern. Yeah. You look at it. You zoom in on your screen. It looks the same. Um, uh, yeah. And the other thing, I I think it's maybe worth. Just teasing out a little bit more of the, your work with Vafa and its relationship here. I mean, there you did, like you said, you did a lot of kitchen sink stuff, but the ultimate system was was investigatable because you had so much symmetry. It was just like there's a speed limit to the black hole rotating. There's also a certain amount of charge you can put in a black hole. And, and am I right to say that you looked at that limit in a certain number of dimensions with supersymmetry and everything? That's right. That's right. We looked at the limit. It right. Uh, I mean, when Vafa and I uh, started the project, uh, we we didn't have the idea that we were going to find this conformal symmetry, mm. um, and we just kept. At some point, um, you know, we had learned so much, um, you know particular from developments in the mid-90s and so on, but we could calculate so much in string theory um, that we thought, you know, this calculation just has to be doable. Um, and we just kind of, in the stupidest possible way, sat down looking at every... <laughs> actually, it was over a period of years discussing with many different people who we tried all kinds of things and eventually we got something. And... At first, it was a puzzle why we we didn't understand that we the the conformal symmetry was enabling us to calculate things. If you pick the wrong example, it won't have the conformal right. symmetry, and you'll just get stuck. Yeah. And so what happened was in this case we didn't get stuck, <laughs> and it was only retroactively that we understood that it was because of the conformal symmetry that we we didn't we didn't get stuck. Yeah. Good. And that, 
even though it wasn't what you had in mind, that ended up helping you when you wanted to think about more realistic black holes in the universe, because even though they're not electrically yeah. charged, they're spinning so fast that something almost as good happens. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you know this, so that we've sort of talked now about things from the mid-90s, from things from you know late 2000s, and so on. So uh, very recently, the last few years, you know, so conformal symmetry keeps popping up, right. you know, and it's our friend. We're always happy when, <laughs> when we when we see it because, you know, um, so, you know, it's popped up again, uh, but this time in a way that is of interest both to um, observational astronomers and to th observational astronomers trying to focus in on what they can learn and see with particular, well, both the Event Horizon Telescope and to lesser degree uh, LIGO, what, what, what you can learn about black holes by, by measuring them, at both to those people and to uh, theoretical physicists trying to understand the holographic principle right. and the mysteries of quantum black holes. And that's this business of the photon ring. Um, Secretly, this is what we've been building up to intentionally the whole conversation. Okay, so okay, we reached okay. exactly where we want to go. I jumped the gun. I jumped the gun. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you made the provocative statement like Spoiler. this is relevant to observation. So like in the 80s, we might have guessed that the way string theory would connect to observation was it would predict the mass of all the particles that we see at our, our, our accelerators. And now we know that's going to be harder than we thought. But maybe, maybe in retrospect, this should have been investigated earlier, but maybe the gravitational lessons of string theory are going to be helpful to observers. Uh, yes. And and um, already, I think that this, you know, this... Um, this discovery of the beautiful and observable properties of the photon ring came out of, you know, and it, it, the discovery of those properties, although they all follow from general relativity, um, came out the way of looking at it, came out of string theory and, um, you know, things we were thinking about uh, in string theory. And they are definitely having a profound, um, a profound influence on the astronomers, and uh, it, it is one of the, if not the main goals of the future development of the Event Horizon Telescope, of which I'm now a member. Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, to to measure them, um, and uh, so it, it's interesting for many different. Uh, points of view. So, yeah. what is the photon ring? We haven't told the audience that yet. Yeah, we haven't. Okay. So, um, it turns out that a black hole, uh, if you look at it, is uh, like a hole of mirrors. So, uh, if you shine a light on your face, bounce off your face, the photon can go off, head towards the black hole. It goes straight to the black hole and it'll just fall in. But if it just misses it, it'll boomerang around the back and come back to you. And you'll see yourself reflected around the side of the... You'll see an, literally see an image of yourself on the side of the black hole. 
But other things can happen. It can go uh, and boomerang and wrap around the black hole once and then come. So you'll actually see an infinite number of images of yourself if you, you know, had perfect resolution while looking at a black hole. So it's like it's like the hall of mirrors. It's like the if you go into a department store with the three frames <laughs> of a mirror, yeah. trying on some clothes, and you can see infinite number of copies of yourself. A black hole is like that. But all the images converge on one place. And it turns out that a photon, if you aim it perfectly, will start to wrap around the black hole and will just keep wrapping around forever. It'll just orbit the black hole forever and never come back if it's perfectly aimed. That's the photon ring. And that photon ring um, is, if you look at the image of a black... So we haven't seen it yet. Uh, we've seen in, those, in that famous donut picture, which most of your listeners have undoubtedly yep. seen, that is not the photon ring. That is light directly coming from hot matter swirling around the black hole directly to the to the telescope. Um, uh, but there are going to be finer images where the photons from that hot swirling disk have wound around the black hole. And um, and the whole series of, of images, and that is what uh, we hope to observe. Uh, these finer and finer images. Now, this is extremely interesting for um, you know for understanding and measuring the laws of physics because we don't know much about what that swirling disk is made of, mm -hmm. and we don't know what kind of magnetic fields are in there. We don't know how fast it's going, and as we measure the image. Uh, better and better, we'll mostly be learning more about the makeup of the matter swirling around the black hole. But what we really want to learn about is the black hole itself. What we, you and I do. <laughs> well, I think, I think the, uh, you and I do. I, and many things are, <laughs> many things are interesting, but certainly the, the, the members of the Event Horizon Telescope are very keen to... Sure to uh, learn, you know, to see properties of curved space-time. We've inferred the existence of highly curved space-time and black holes, so on, um, but our, our ways of directly probing it are precious few. Right. Mm -hmm. And seeing something like a photon that is wrapped around the black hole at the speed of light, that is really a qualitatively new observation. Now, what you're seeing, so the black hole is the mirror here. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the department store and you look at, uh, at the direct image, you might learn about whether or not you want to buy the clothes you're trying on, but you won't learn much about the structure of the mirrors. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the relationship between the direct image of the mirror and the once reflected, the twice, you can, from that, totally, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. <laughs> You'll get the same information about the 
arrangement of the mirrors. So it factors out the relative images. It factors out all the uninteresting information about uh, <laughs> about the closure word. You and your fashion sense, <laughs> and, yeah. And and you get all the information about about the mirrors. So that's what we want to do. Um, that's what we want to do with with the with the black hole. And now, um, and it turns out that this is all possible because of a conformal symmetry hmm. that appears at the photon ring. And in this and in this context, the conformal symmetry relates photons which uh, wind once to those that wind twice, and and so on. And in fact, if you dial this back to a black hole that's rotating at the speed limit, it's kind of the same conformal symmetry. So they're not very far, they're not very far okay. apart. And, um, you know, okay, so we have some ideas of how to apply to the holographic principle to uh, black holes spinning at the speed limit. So this photon ring has been interesting, both to, as I said, to observers and to theorists. And there's nothing like looking at an image <laughs> to make you think about things differently. Yeah. It's been amazing. It's how very it, true, yeah. It, looking at an image makes you think differently. Another thing that makes you think differently is trying to explain something to observers <laughs> or to answer their questions. You know. Because basically, a little bit of a side, but basically, and you know this, Sean, theoretical physicists are by and large all really stupid. And what we all do <laughs> is we rewrite with a few different words the paper we wrote last week, which is a rewriting of somebody. And basically, if you could just think about things a little bit differently, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit different perspective is is, is enormous, and observers are great for asking you a question that makes you that makes you think about things differently. So we were looking at this, and I invite you to look at that last few seconds of the beautiful numerical. I invite all your listeners to look at the numerical simulation with the stars in the background of the first LIGO merger. Look at the last few seconds okay. and then ask yourself, where is the holographic plane? Mm. Well, there's a little circle around those black holes <laughs> that seems to, when you look at it, that circle is saying, I am the holographic plane. <laughs> I will look that up. <laughs> now, there's no mathematics here. There's right. no mathematics here. <laughs> We're trying to get the mathematics. But, right. but, but the hypothesis is on the table that the photon ring is actually uh, the holographic plate. And the best evidence for that hypothesis is just looking at the, looking at the image. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so I invite all your listeners to go dig up that, that video. It's beautiful. But that's yeah. fascinating because I think that most 
people, even physicists, would have guessed that all the holographies going on at the event horizon of the black hole and the photon exactly. ring is quite a bit separate from that. That's right. That's right. Though in ADS CFT, it would be at the boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, but, but, you know, I was, I was, would have said what you just said, but there's no sort of proof of that. Right. And it, and, Go look at okay, it, Sean. Okay, yeah, I want to look at it now. Now I want to <laughs> send me an email. Tell me what, if you're convinced. <laughs> you don't even have to read our, our papers pontificating about it. Just look at the picture. <laughs> I will. I absolutely will. But I do want to ask, just again for clarity, um, we're not saying here that string theory is making a different prediction than classical general relativity would for these phenomena. We're using string theory to analyze. A prediction that is the same as we would ordinarily expect. Is that right? Yeah, we're not even using string theory. Okay. So it's like this. So before my construction with Vafa, nobody even had the foggiest idea how it could possibly be that you would have uh, that number of gigabytes in a black hole. There was no, there was just no way to, and it seemed like really irreconcilable. Uh, points of view, the sort of general relativity point of view and the particle physics point of view seemed seemed irreconcilable. And the argument, however, the argument that they're irreconcilable had a series of loopholes mm. which which string theory brilliantly snaked <laughs> its way through. So now we know that there's there's a route through that seeming paradox. And it would be, it was, a, nobody thought of the root before sort of the stupid brute yeah. force calculation revealed where it lied. And now it would be surprising if there's another root. In any case, it's worthwhile seeing sure. if we can show, just starting with assuming quantum mechanics, general relativity, and many other things that we've come to understand about that we've come to show, you know, without assuming string theory or anything else about the nature of quantum systems involving gravity, that that is that a similar route is is followed by the real world. But even a sketching of that route for black holes that are way below the spinning speed limit uh, has has been missing. We, right. we don't even have that. And we'd like to sketch how that route could work and looks to be like the <laughs> photon ring is 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 a is a step on that route. Yeah, okay. You know yeah, no we have to make judgments. I haven't here. shown anything, right? right? But I I'm, right. I'm, you know, I'm excited about trying to understand this. Yeah. Do you think there is any hope um, for finding anywhere in the universe um, a deviation from classical general relativity because of string theory, whether it's black holes or the microwave background or something weirder? There's certainly hope. Um, um, but, um, you know, there's things that have happened like for example, there was a moment when it looked like there was a string up in the sky that was lensing stars, 
and that might have been some kind of uh, evidence for string theory. Now that disappeared, that signal disappeared. But, you know, that's a nice existence proof bicep two. That was a mm -hmm. wrong experiment, mm -hmm. but it looked like we were measuring quantum gravitational effects. So it's not, it's not logically impossible, but, uh, I, and I'm glad that there's a lot of people out there who are vigorously, you know, shaking the trees, trying to find some way of, of making the measurements. But my guess is they're, you know, my guess it's, I mean, it's very important that those people are doing that. My guess is they won't succeed, you know, it, it, until, I mean, science changes, they won't succeed. You know, we can't say what, we have no idea what science will look like in say 20, 30 years, you know, but I don't think anybody will succeed in the next 20, 30 years. After that, all bets are off. We hope we're wrong, um, right? What? We hope we're wrong. We hope we're wrong. Of course I hope I'm wrong. And I, I, I and I don't I don't want to be discouraging to those people who are trying to do it because I'd like them I'd like them to continue, but every every scientist has to bet. Sure. Uh science is not a science, it's an <laughs> art and a gamble or whatever. Um, you know, on on what things are likely to pan out. And and also what things they each scientist feels they are good at, you know, and so um, I think that this kind of understanding, you know, I spent sort of the first fifteen years of my career as a theoretical physicist, most of it on top down, assuming, assuming what can we, you know, we had one example of a theory that. Uh, is consistent with general relativity and quantum mechanics. What are the details of this? What is its structure? And but for the last, that's top-down physics. Mm -hmm. You start with some assumptions about microphysics and you try to push them down. But there's a lot to do. We're not short of <laughs> ideas on bottom up. Right. There's a lot to do. And the top-down approach um, has given us ideas on what to, uh, how to proceed, how to organize the bottom-up approach. And we need to do everything. I'm sure that we won't, we won't get to the, I don't think we'll ever get to the final truth of nature, but I, I don't think we'll even get to the big next step uh, without doing everything, using every approach, turning over every stone. That's our job. You know, that would be the perfect place to end, but I wanted to end uh, with an anecdote. <laughs> I mean, that's a very inspirational uh, last place to go, but you probably don't remember, but I, this might've been the first time we ever met. You came to MIT to give a seminar back when I was either a grad student or postdoc there. Uh, we went out to dinner afterward with a bunch of people, including Roman Jakiv, who was yeah, co-author yeah. on my first ever paper, as well as your thesis advisor. And uh, yeah. we were just chit-chatting, and, and there were no string theorists in the audience there except you, because MIT didn't really do string theory at the time. Um, and at some point, you mentioned, you said, you know, obviously, 
each of us thinks that whatever we're working on right now is the most important thing to be working on in all of physics. And the rest of the table sort of looked uncomfortable. <laughs> and then you said, well, I think that anyway. <laughs> so do you still stand by that statement? And do you think that's good advice? <laughs> I stand by it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a high bar. It's, you know, it's easy to do things in physics because we can do them, not necessarily because they're the most important thing to be done. Oh, no, but come on. But it's part of the statement, right? I mean... I, I wasn't trying to, uh, you know, it's a it's a knife edge. There 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 are things that are uh, you can do, but they're not interesting. And then there's things that are interesting, but you can't do. And <laughs> things which you can do and are interesting. That's a knife edge. And the art of being a good physicist is not falling off the knife edge. And most of the time we're all on one side of it or another. <laughs> so the most interesting things, they're not it's maybe the most interesting questions, you know, and we're not even addressing like the meaning of life. You know, I'd, I'd rather know what the meaning of life is than what's inside a black hole. Well, Fair that enough. would be, would it, would, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's close. But, uh, there's lots of questions <laughs> we don't, <laughs> there's lots of questions we, we, we don't, we don't address. The most interesting ones are the ones that or the most important ones, what I, what I meant by that, were the ones that are both interesting and and and, and doable. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty good. Good. I'm glad that you, yeah. I'm glad that we can stick by the advice. So, Andy Strominger, thanks so much for being on the Mindscape podcast. Okay, super fun shot. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know.